Luke chapter 2. Let's read this together, starting at verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Would you pause with me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for whatever it is that God, by His Spirit, through His Word, would want to teach us today? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you are a gracious God who is full of compassion, slow to anger, abounding and overflowing with mercy. We know this because of your great love demonstrated in Jesus, and we trust in your promises that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So teach us today, God. Teach us how we can increasingly learn to submit all of life to Jesus so that the work you have done in us to save us also becomes the work that you accomplish through us to amplify the message of the gospel of Jesus everywhere we go with everyone we meet. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, here we are back at this passage again. We are going to look at another aspect of these first seven verses. And so we are here in the first verse of Luke chapter 2, and we're introduced to a person by the name of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus. Now, you've probably heard of the name Caesar Augustus before because he's one of the most famous people in all of history. And if you haven't, uh, you either weren't paying attention in class or you're going to get there someday in class. I don't know, whatever. (laughs) But he was, as most of us know, he was the founder of the Roman Empire and its first emperor. His rise to power was filled, by the way, with violence and destruction. Violence and destruction But once he achieved power, Augustus actually treated the Romans with kindness. And this is kind of the pattern of any altruistic society. Uh, They don't get to their ability to be altruistic, uh, in in most cases, without a history of extreme violence and destruction. It's just kind of how it happens. I'm not saying it's a right or wrong thing, but when you think about like how we got to where we are as America, it happened through somewhat some violence, right? And so that's just kind of how things happen, and this is no different here. But the, uh, the Roman people loved Caesar Augustus and considered him to be a god. And he was very aware of this and <laughs> actually wrote about it in his own uh, autobiography called The Deeds of the Divine Augustus. So right off the bat, we know that he's a little bit 
confluated in his view of himself. You can probably say he was a narcissist. But anyways, this is what he says about himself. And now imagine yourself writing this about you. 21 times I was named emperor. 55 times the Senate decreed that sacrifices be made to the immortal gods on my behalf. In my triumphs, nine kings or children of kings were led before my chariot. I have been made consul 13 times. I was Pontifex, Pontifex Maximus. I can't say it, sorry. <laughs> Highest religious ranking in Roman religion. All citizens with one accord unceasingly prayed in every holy place for my well-being. As we talked more in depth last week, if you were here, you, you were here to remember that we talked about this reality, that there was this tense political climate that Jesus was born into. And this makes sense because this is what the Jewish people had heard the prophets talk about for hundreds of years. For instance, the prophet Isaiah wrote about this coming Messiah hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And he said this in Isaiah chapter 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, a virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. And then later in chapter 9 say, For unto us will be born, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of peace. And so for hundreds of years, the Jewish people understood that the coming of a Savior would be through this sense of peace, which means that there probably wasn't going to what be what? Peace, right? And this picture of peace that is painted in these words is very different than the picture that we see in the world around us, isn't it? It's a very different picture than what we see in the aftermaths and the shootings in Michigan or the tragedy of the Waukesha Christmas parade. If you don't know what either of those things are, uh, might be good for you or you are just that disconnected from the news. But that's just recent things that have pointed to the fact that we live in a very broken, tumultuous world. And I know the temptation would, to say that, would be to say that things are getting worse. But for the eyes of history, they really haven't, have they? We still live in a world that desperately needs peace desperately needs a wonderful counselor, desperately needs a mighty God, don't we? And you know what's more difficult and maybe even awkward for me to admit? This picture of Jesus who is the Prince of Peace. If I was honest with myself, is also a very different picture than what I see in my own home. Between me and my wife, me and my kids. Or let's get even honest, between me and myself, 
me and my selfish desires, the war between me and what I want, what I know God wants. There is still and there has always been a need for peace. And that's because it doesn't matter what kind of government or political systems is in place, democratic, socialist, communist, fascist, totalitarian, you name it. There's tons of different kinds. For those who poli-sci majors, it's like, you forgot like a whole bunch of them. I'm not a poli-sci major. I was just listing the ones that I have readily available in my noggin. It doesn't matter what political system is in place. Earthly kingdoms and empires will always operate differently than the kingdom of God. Not only just politically, but the empires of our own heart. The kingdoms of our own heart. They will always operate differently than the kingdom of God. And it's this kingdom that I want to talk about today. Because this is the reason why Jesus came. Jesus came to invite us into his kingdom of peace. And to show us what it means to live as citizens of that kingdom. You see, 300 years before Jesus' birth, Alexander the Great had determined that for there to be peace on earth, all the people of the earth should be united under one government and one ruler, and that they should pick the best culture and the best ruler to run it. That makes sense. Coincidentally, it was himself. <laughs> should be mine, and I should be the one to run it. But Alexander the Great actually thought that he was doing a favor when you look at his writings. He thought he was being a benevolent ruler to the rest of the world by bringing Greek culture to them. And history proves to us that he, he, he came pretty close. And then in the time of Jesus' birth, the Roman Empire was entering into an era known as Pax Romana. Pax Romana, we talked about this last week. This is Latin for the, you know, the, the peace of Rome. And the thinking of Alexander the Great continued with Caesar Augustus, and he declared himself the Pope, <laughs> basically. And he called himself the Emperor, and the Roman Emperor Empire spread and became vast and enduring. And it's into these kingdoms and empires that Jesus is born, proclaiming, as we look later into his ministry, proclaiming a brand new kingdom upon which those around him considered him the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And so do you see why the declaration of a new kingdom would have been scandalous, subversive, or revolutionary? I mean, can you understand how this idea of a king of kings, a lord of lords being born in this environment would have been absolutely, absolutely scandalous. In fact, it helps us to understand why we read what we read in Matthew chapter 2 when we find King Herod announcing that every boy, catch this, every boy under the age of two should be slaughtered. Like, that just does not make sense, right? But in light of the scandalous nature of Jesus, this king of kings who would supposedly in the eyes of the world would usurp the throne that is Rome, that makes sense. 
I didn't say it was right, but it makes sense. And so King Herod orders the slaughtering of every boy under the age of two when he learns about Jesus because Herod is worried about what? Jesus setting up a new kingdom. New kingdom. And yet when you read the Gospels, here's what Jesus himself says about this new kingdom that he's come to introduce. John 18, 36, he says, My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. So the kingdom of God takes everything that we know about the empires of this world and flips it upside down. The last becomes first. The greatest become the servants. And how do you defeat evil, by the way? With good. When you think about it, the message of Jesus is a completely scandalous and subversive and revolutionary message to the kingdom of our worlds, even today. And so if there's a difference between the kingdom that Jesus came to establish and the one that mankind in their own wisdom and power to try to, uh, try to establish, what are those differences and why does it matter? That's what I want to talk about. What are those differences and why does that matter? Well, first this, in, earthly kingdoms are governed through authority. God's kingdom governs through humility. Now, I'm not saying that God is not powerful and that he doesn't have the final authority, but Jesus' authority is not established through a strong arm of, of, uh, of submission. <laughs> it has come through the strong and the courageous action of humility through the cross. Earthly kingdoms will always operate to some extent by force, and control by assort, asserting their authority. By the way, uh, just a disclaimer, this is not an anti-government talk. I'm not trying to get political here. But here's the thing. Uh, earthly kingdoms are not just defined by political systems or governments. Earth, an earthly kingdom is any sphere of influence where authority is used to bring about a kind of order and law that dictates the way people live, operate, and measure their personal value by. That's what an earthly kingdom is. Anything that is where, where authority is used to bring about any kind of order or law that dictates the way people live, operate, and measure their personal value. It's, it's an authority. It's a, it's a control. Earthly kingdoms can be governments, but it can also be you. It can be me. It could be my home, it could be my family, it could be my circle of friends. It could also be my life. It's, it's where I sit on the throne. I use my control. My, it's my body. It's my mind. I can think what I want to think and, and I don't have to submit my life to a book or some ideals or some government or some community. I, I can think what I want to think and I want to sit on the throne as king and, and I'm the one who determines what's right for me and what is wrong for me consequently. And you know, we're accomplishing the best version of myself means making me greater. It sounds like this. Your best you is on the other side of you, right? You have the power. 
in your hands to, to form your destiny. <laughs> That's what the world wants us to think. I haven't lived super long. But I've lived long enough to know that I don't care how powerful you are. There are just some things that are out of your control, which points to a fact that someone greater is in control. Jesus talked about this in a similar way. In Matthew chapter 20, he says this, Jesus called his disciples together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not... This is the reason... Like if Jesus knew that that would sound ridiculous. And so he lays the trump card down and he says, Listen, I'm not asking you to do anything that I wouldn't do. That's why he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you're looking for good news, that, my friend, is good news. Jesus came into the world to establish a kingdom where those who lead are those who serve. And it's completely countercultural. I, I don't care what time period you have lived in, great, great cultures of the world. Powerful and successful cultures of the world do not look like this. Where those who lead serve. And though it's countercultural, it's definitely beautiful when you think about it. And I would, I would dare to say that even if you're not someone who's sure you believe everything you've heard about Jesus in the Bible, when you hear that, that true leadership is found through humility, true leaders serve, something within you goes, and that sounds right. <laughs> that sounds right. And I would dare to suggest to you that the reason why that sounds right is because you and I have been created in the image of God, we are image bearers of God who within our DNA, it says in Romans chapter 1 that God's truth has been planted in our hearts. And I would tell you that if that sounds like something that is true, and you're like, man, that sounds right, it's because it's God's truth. God's kingdom is a kingdom of peace that is a result of being governed by the law of serving others, loving others, prioritizing others, adding value to others. When was the last time you asked yourself, self, in what I'm about to do, how can I add value to others? 
That doesn't sound like anything groundbreaking, I know. (laughs) But that's because many of us fail to understand and perceive others as Jesus defined others. Like, it's easy to say, oh, love others. Like, I get that. I do that, Phil. Really? But do you do it as Jesus defines it? Like, for real? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this, You have heard the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, here's the other. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Throughout Jesus' teachings that we find in the New Testament, Jesus makes it clear that the hope of the world does not lie in any particular version of an earthly kingdom. But the hope of the world lies in the kingdom of God which operates with a completely different understanding of power. In earthly kingdoms, citizens ask this, hey, what's in it for me? How does this benefit me? How can I achieve all that I can achieve in the army? Uh, How can I protect what I've built? Some of you know the commercial. Uh, How can I experience the unalienable rights given to me by my creator, such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? This is what earthly kingdoms declare. But in God's kingdoms, citizens of his kingdom ask this. How can I serve? How can I bring hope and healing to others? What has been entrusted to me that I can sacrifice to bring the peace of God, not the peace of this world, but the peace of God into the world? How can I find my life (laughs) by losing my life for the sake of the gospel? This is the difference between earthly kingdoms and heavenly kingdoms. As a matter of fact, the Greek word for witness is the word martyr. We understand the word martyr as someone who is willing to be killed for a cause they believe in. And this is because our understanding of that word is based on the sacrifice of Jesus' followers in the first three centuries. As followers of Jesus, they were being executed for their faith. And instead of choosing to fight back and assert their rights and their interests, they took to heart the words of Jesus. Love your enemies. Pray for those which persecute you. They took to heart the example of Jesus who, portray, who prayed for his executioners. If you forget on the cross, what did Jesus say? Screw you guys. Do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? Jesus didn't say that, did he? If I was Jesus, I, that's what I would say. I'll just be honest with you. And that's why I'm not your savior. So... What did Jesus say? 
Father, forgive them. You know what happened? As a result of that display of living as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, as opposed to standing up to the governments like the Judaizers of that time who sought to overthrow an earthly kingdom by asserting a new kingdom, when Jesus displayed the ethics of heaven by saying, Father, forgive them, a new kingdom was born and new citizens fell in rank by choosing to say, that truly is the Son of God. He is the King of kings. Who would say that but the Son of God? And many people became followers of Jesus in the first three centuries, three centuries not because of how good Jesus' followers were at defending themselves and their interests, but because of how well they died like their Savior knowing that sacrificial love overcomes evil. So the question is this. I took this passage of Scripture as an opportunity to talk about this idea found in Isaiah 9-6 that Jesus who was born is the what? Prince of Peace. And this is something that I would hope we would find and be reminded of and increasingly embrace as a part of our lives the peace of God which passes all understanding. So the question is then how do we find this peace without pretending, right? Because sometimes it's easy to go, I need some peace, I need some peace. Okay, okay, God, I trust in you. Greater is he that is with me that is in the world. And we make it an incantation. We make this pursuit of peace some type of magic thing that we say as if it came out of some book of spells, it was a Harry Potter thing, or is it maybe something out of like self-motivation, and we believe that if we say it enough, we'll believe it, right? That the Bible was just kind of some greater secret, kind of like the book, The Secret, that if we believe it, we will achieve it. But I, I, I believe that pursuing peace in our life is more than just reciting verses and proclaiming your future. I believe that peace comes when you choose first and foremost to trust in Jesus as a source of your new citizenship, your new identity. That you would wake up every single day and go, I trust in you, God, who sees me as you desire me, not as I was yesterday or the day before. And I trust you for that. I accept your forgiveness and I repent of who I was and I look towards you, look toward what you say who I am is. Look what the Apostle Paul writes about Jesus in Ephesians. He says this, since you have heard, in Ephesians chapter 4, if you're taking notes, Ephesians 4, since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, here's what he says, do this, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted 
by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. I love what Paul says here. He contrasts these two natures. He says you have an old nature and a new nature. The old nature that wants to destroy others and dehumanize others to make sure that you feel better about yourself. But a new nature, which is the way of Jesus, and it doesn't give in to that deception. It has new thoughts and new attitudes. It has new ways of living the old nature operates within the kingdoms of this world. It, it, it seeks after and works after the things that this world thinks is valuable, but the new nature operates with the kingdom of God and sets its heart on the things that are valuable in the kingdom of God. It sets its heart not on here, but in heaven. It stores its treasures and finds its value in the economy of heaven not the economy of earth. And we find earth, and we find Jesus teaching about this with tremendous clarity when he says this in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled or fearful. Now, part of me, I, I read that and I'm like, yes. Yes. Like, don't you hear that? And you're like, yes. But I know, just like you know, it's easier to say, don't let your heart be troubled, Phil. Don't be fearful. Just trust in Jesus. I know it's easier to say that than to actually have it happen on the other side of saying that. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Right? I think you do. Like, just saying, Jesus, I trust you is... <laughs> often not enough to find us experiencing the peace of Jesus. And I think there's a reason. And I know for some, this truth, this reality would be a roadblock to many people placing their trust in Jesus if they thought that the Christian understanding of finding peace was just by uttering or praying, Jesus, I trust you. Or declaring to yourself in an effort of self-motivation, self, I trust Jesus, so I'm not afraid. But is this what Jesus meant? I don't think so. In fact, you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, in John 14, literally the verses before, <laughs> Jesus says, peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. He actually talks about where this peace comes from. In verse 14, he says this, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, another counselor, another helper, who will... Never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit. I love what one uh, Bible scholar says. Uh, we often miss, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, we often think of the idea of God's Holy Spirit as Holy Spirit, right? But the original writers didn't, it's not Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that is Holy 
And the reason why we say holy is because that is what we need to understand is required of us, holiness. So it's not a definition, much less of the, the spirit, which is holy, but it's more of a definition of what happens to our lives when we accept Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes to us. And so Jesus says, he is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. So Jesus promises his disciples as he promises us that once he goes away, the Father will send another person, his spirit, his Holy Spirit. And from the disciples' perspective, that didn't seem like a great trade, but Jesus tells them that, that it's, a, it's a better trade. Listen, you don't want me to stay here, but Jesus, you, you like turn water into wine, all this stuff, you're just so great, you're just Jesus, we love you, you died on the cross and rose from the dead. This is not a good trade, your Holy Spirit, like we can't see you here. No, 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 Jesus said, this is better, this is better, this is better, and it's better that I go away so that the Holy Spirit can come because it will never leave you. And why is it better to have the Holy Spirit than Jesus in the flesh? Because the Holy Spirit, while Jesus could be with them, the Holy Spirit is God in them. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit is God in you. If you repent, turn from living life your way and choosing to live life God's way, placing your faith and trust in Jesus, whom you declare with your mouth and with your heart believe God raised from the dead. And having God with us is good, but having God in us is better. And that's why in the verse right before Jesus talking about his peace, he says this in verse 26, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you everything I have told you. In light of that, the next verse, so peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled or fearful. I love that Jesus doesn't deny that the world offers a sense of peace. There's a peace this world offers us. And he simply contrasts that peace that he offers, peace of mind and heart, with what the world offers. Because I think what Jesus was trying to say is, you know what the world offers. A peace a smokescreen, so to say, of peace, of external forces. Good job. Enough food on the table. No wars. Peace. You know, like this kind of stuff. But the peace that God offers is in the middle of your persecution, in the middle of having enemies, in the middle of in this world having troubles, you will take heart you will have peace. And this peace is received, as I said, 
when we decide to live by the Spirit. And in obedience, obedience, obedience. I know that's not a popular thing to say, but listen, we find peace when we live in obedience to the truth as revealed in the teachings of Jesus and the full counsel of God as found in what we call the Bible. And here's the good news. (laughs) When we decide to live like that, the Holy Spirit points us towards the truth of God's kingdom that says when we embrace the way of Jesus and lift others up and serve others, we find peace that cannot be tied to the situation that we face. And so my prayer is that during this Christmas season, all of us would be able to recognize this Prince of Peace and live our lives as a part of his kingdom.